Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Cast Dice, the podcast that explores the great big wild world of tabletop gaming that exists today. It has been said once or twice, mainly on this podcast, that we are in the middle of a gaming renaissance. There are just too many good games out there that we can spend our hobby time and our hobby dollars on, and it can lead to a serious case of not knowing what to play next. And I guess that's the purpose of this podcast. It's to talk about the games that my guests and I love playing, to talk to the people that have written these games, to talk about big industry events that are going on. Now, uh, we have been talking a little bit about bolt action in recent episodes, uh, both of the Ghost Army podcast and in Cast Ice, and I thought it was a great time to revisit a topic that I do like to revisit every couple years, and that's to talk about one of my favorite armies in bolt action, and an army that, despite being one of the big five, it is often left out of the majors list and is even considered a minor power by some. It has its own armies of book, and yet we rarely see it on the tabletop compared to other nations, which is bizarre because they are the second largest Axis nation. Of course, we're talking about Japan, um, a country where I grew up and so I'm quite passionate about. But joining me today is someone who also appeared on a recent episode of Sounds of Battle podcast that I absolutely recommend, not because I'm on it, but because it's a really interesting look at social media uh, in wargaming. I think it's a fantastic all-around look. Two episodes, uh, again, Sounds of Battle, highly recommend you guys check it out if you haven't already. Um, the Welsh guys totally nailed it, and I'm a big fan. But another guest on the episode that I was on in a different segment was a guy who is as passionate about the Japanese as I am. And we are both passionate about how to make the Japanese work in a way that isn't standard. Giant air quotes on that word. Um, but before we go any further, of course, I'm talking about the gentleman behind the Instagram page, Scale History SLC, Jordan Wiebe. Welcome to Cast Dice. Hey, Brad. It's so good to be here. Brother, it is good to have you on. How you doing? Man, I'm having such a good day. I'm so excited to talk about the Japanese, for sure. Right? I mean, I've been following your Insta page for a while, and even before that, I, while I was <clears throat> figuring out Instagram, which is a relatively recent thing for me, I was seeing a ton of your posts only because we, you know, I, I had subscribed to a bunch of the hashtags that you were posting into. And so it, it took me a hot minute to figure out, A, that, you know, from seeing your stuff on Facebook, that you were the same Jordan um, on the Scale History SLC page, and then to, to actually follow through. Man, you've got some great looking models on there. Um, talk to us a little bit about your journey on Instagram. Uh, I mean... It is sort of an undiscovered country for me, and it's full of awesome pictures. Um, what really got you passionate about being a regular wargaming contributor on Instagram? Well, I've, I've been involved with Instagram for quite a while now, um, just in the various like different passions and stuff and, and pursuits that I've gone after. Mm -hmm. um, so it was kind of a platform that I was already familiar with, and... Uh, about three years ago when I was getting back into wargaming, um, I was actually I actually started building uh, scale models again. And I was posting pictures on my personal page and um, people just didn't really seem to care or <laughs> understand or, yep. uh, you know, wanted to see pictures of my dog more than anything. 
So uh, I just created a page and um, didn't think too hard about it. Um, it was building scale models. I live in Salt Lake City, Utah. So I was like, okay, scale history SLC. Uh, we'll just do this. And, and just uh, was posting the pictures of my progress. And then when I got into wargaming, um, Bolt Action specifically, I uh, just kept following that trend. But I noticed um, very quickly after starting to post my progress, uh, getting into Bolt Action, that I was interacting with people all over the world uh, very fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Yeah, it just kind of it just carried on from there, and uh, it's fun for me to to look back on on some of my older stuff because that goes back three years now and see how I've progressed um, in my in my painting and my hobbying, but also I just enjoy reflecting on all of these people that I've been able to connect with uh, from all over the world just through posting army men on Instagram. That's it, man. And I, man, I'm the same way with the cast ice page. Um, because yeah, uh, quote unquote, normal friends don't necessarily always understand our hobby, do they? No, no. Yeah. Um, I find that posting dog photos and wargaming photos, uh, on a, a specialized page goes a long way, right? I think you need to get some more dog photos in yours, but you know, that's just exactly. my opinion. Anyway, well, maybe I'll, yeah, okay. I'll take what I learned from uh, scale history SLC and, and create a account for my dog and go from there man uh, look uh, maybe I, I don't know how many people i follow on instagram but most of them are wargaming uh there are quite a few dogs on there i'm just saying anyway uh, i'll Never leave my that. own personal uh dog interests out of this but having um gone through your insta page many times recently i'm blown away by the the sheer number of japanese vehicles japanese armies uh, different types of units, and we're going to get into a lot of those in a minute. But, I mean, I think you and I both understand, um, being experienced Japanese players, that you can play Japanese in more than one way. Now, Warlord very clearly leaned into um, a certain uh, cinematic uh, moment in history, almost, of the Japanese uh, during the Pacific Campaign um, often during the island hopping campaign where they were on the defense and the Americans think Marines on the offense. So w- the book leans into bonsai charges. It leans into mm-hmm. hordes and hordes of inexperienced uh, guys, bamboo spear squads who, you know, historically didn't really appear in the war, just a, a suicide AT guys. All of this sort of leans into a very specific play style. I mean, you often think if people say Japanese armies in bolt action, you think, you know, unwashed uh, hordes of inexperienced fanatical troops charging out of the woods uh, or the, the jungle line, tree line at your Marines, getting gunned down and then, you know, trying to make it much like an orc charge in Warhammer 40,000. Do you think right. I'm summarizing this about right? I think, yeah, I think that's a great uh, summarization of that. And I think it has a lot to do with um, maybe our perception in the West of how World War II and the Pacific actually yeah. went. Uh, it's definitely a, a lesser known side of the conflict. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think the average person, um, you know, maybe knows about Pearl Harbor 
probably definitely knows about Pearl Harbor, maybe knows about Midway, uh, maybe Iwo Jima and the flag raising there, and then definitely knows about the atomic bomb that ended the war. Um, and I think a lot of uh, us in the West don't don't get the chance to understand what really took place between, you know, the end of 1941 to August 1945. And there's so much more that happened there, not to mention the Japanese culture uh, amongst all the cultures in the world is um, so unique. It's hard. It's harder, I think, for people to kind of understand the Japanese, uh, maybe like they can understand the Germans or the Italians. And so sometimes to get, I think, the the broad point across, um, like like Warlord is doing, uh, leaning into some of those uh, those stereotypes or aspects of the war that were maybe more unique, but uniquely Japanese. Yeah. Um, I think that maybe that's that's the way just like they had to, to market a Japanese army in bolt action. Well, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, you're absolutely right. It is what most Western countries or mes- most Westerners think about uh, the Pacific theater of World War II. It's, it's what's in our history books. It's what we learned about. In Australia, you, you tend to get maybe a slightly broader view. Um, mm-hmm. But even that, I mean, the fact that Darwin was bombed repeatedly during World War II was kept a state secret for decades after World War II. Like, it just was not talked about. It did not uh, get advertised that, you know, there was actually attacks on the Australian mainland during World War II. Um, There was actually uh, a captured POW um, who, you know, crash-landed and was... A, a Japanese POW in Australia who was captured on Australian soil, whose plane was, you know, crashed. And so, you know, there's a lot, I guess there's more to it. Having lived down here, you know, you see a, a slightly broader slice, but even then you're still thinking a very specific way. And sure. let's, let's be clear. The Japanese army was all about um, the, the the fighting soldier. They believed in the superiority of the Japanese fighting man. And the Arasaka rifle is a pure example of that. It was a rifle that was probably, well, it was definitely dated by the beginning of the war. It was very long. It was almost a spear in and of itself. Um, that's just the basic rifle that riflemen used. And when you put a bayonet on the end, you can understand why... Um, you know, bayonet charges were still a valid tactic. I mean, that was just the mm-hmm. weapons that they had. But the development of submachine guns didn't come till far later in the war. Um, and even right. then, it was far too late for mass production. Um, if we look at the armored vehicles, they also, uh, they tend to be very light, very lightly armed, very lightly armored. And a lot of them are from pre-1937 uh, development. Uh, and they came more came after that. But by the time they ran into the the Americans and just, you know, the Shermans with far thicker armor, uh, they just didn't have the resources to pivot. And while a bunch of tanks were developed, um, both the infrastructure was sort of stripped out at that point because they were on the defensive and they just didn't have the resources. And it was also that a huge number of resources were being poured into aircraft and into the Navy. Um, and so bolt action wise you do often just look at a japanese army and it is just a wall of riflemen if they even have rifles in bolt action terms 
Um, so yeah, but if we think about the Japanese uh, part of World War II, it actually predates World War II significantly. I mean, the Japanese sort of invaded Manchuria in 1932, um, and then right. you know things kicked off with the Sino-Japanese War, which is the full Japanese invasion into China in 1937, starting with the Marco Polo Bridge incident, which we talked about significantly on a recent episode of the Ghost Army podcast. But there, I mean, a large chunk of the Japanese military, and if you remember how large Japan is, it's a very small place. Um, think about how many soldiers you would need to control a large chunk of China and to fight a, a prolonged um, land campaign through China, through Burma, um, through right. these areas, um, and you just often don't think about it. Uh, and we're going to talk about that at length, I'm sure, because that's... That's the Japanese force that I've built, but yeah. it, it you just it if the the rules that you would commonly associate with the, you know the mass inexperienced hordes and bolt action just don't fit that style of army both historically, you know, and what would kind of work tactically with that army as well. Um, but I can talk about that for days. Do you have anything you want to add to what I've just said, or do you want to start pivoting into how you approach Japanese listing? Well, I, I would just add to that. Uh, I mean, if you think about it, uh, like you said, the Japanese were in China fighting for years before World War II uh, kind of officially started in September 1939. Mm -hmm. So at the outbreak of World War II, Japan was probably one of the most experienced professional armies in the world. Correct. Um, Germany had definitely been doing some, uh, kind of, uh, undercover mm -hmm. <laughs> fighting in Spain and testing it in the Soviet union. Um, but the Japanese were in, in <laughs> savage conflict with the Chinese, um, for many, many years. And you kind of see it when, uh, at the beginning of world war two, Japan rolls over, uh, all of these different colonial forces that are in the Pacific. So mm -hmm. um, rolled over the British and their allies in Singapore. Um, and they were outnumbered in that campaign also, uh, significantly significantly outnumbered by British and uh, Commonwealth troops um, when they captured Singapore. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they, they, uh, they fought and, and won uh, the Philippines from American and Filipino hands. Um, they made huge, huge uh, strides of conquest uh, in this early part of the war and were very, very experienced and were not using uh, tactics reminiscent of, um, you know, just charging hordes of infantry, inexperienced infantry, uh, machine guns. You know, they were very, very capable, uh, very professional and uh, they were a deadly army. So um, you just you have a lot of of um, historical uh, kind of data to pull from uh, when building your army because they <laughs> they were veterans. Um, That's true. Yeah. Well, let's <laughs> let's backtrack to um, the way that you approach listing with the Japanese. I mean, because. Again, uh, let's let's think quickly about the national rules. 
Japanese uh, come with fanatic for free for all of their infantry, small team, artillery, for all of those models. So when mm-hmm. you list in Japan, you have that rule. Now, you know whether or not that is better than, say, a free 12-man inexperienced squad or a free you know, artillery observer, that's debatable. Um, but if you consider, if you have what? 40, 50 Japanese uh, models in your army, which if you have, you know, five eight-man squads, uh, that is 40 infantry squad, you know, basic infantrymen. And most Japanese players have more than that. Um, And that's three points per model. That's 120 points. So you're already better off than the other quote-unquote free units. Of course, there's the debate of whether or not Fnatic is actually worth three points, but that's a whole other debate. Even if it was worth two points, you're still going pretty well. And it just right. lends itself to the durability of Japanese on the tabletop. Of course, they also have bonsai charge um, and a variety of other rules. So when all of that sort of ties in, you can see why people think, how can I get cheap, inexperienced, uh, or sorry, cheap fanatic troops on the tabletop and really maximize that rule? Um, I don't know if you necessarily need to, though. And so... Regular, I mean, you often see veteran Japanese paratrooper armies or veteran Japanese small forces or the horde, more often the horde. What's your take on this? Well, I typically like to run my infantry uh, either um, as veterans or regulars. Now, veterans with the fanatic rule are absolutely uh very difficult to remove for your Mm. opponent um you have a lot of staying power veterans in general are already uh so much more difficult to take care of than regular or inexperienced troops and then when you're throwing in that free fanatic rule for all of them uh they become a fantastic multi uh versatile tool Mm -hmm. whether you are attacking um claiming objectives or defending and holding an objective Mm -hmm. um it it's going to take a lot for them to move um but that also kind of carries over to your regular troops um if you're going pound for pound with other uh regular riflemen from other armies um having all of your your regular troops with that fanatic rule uh is going to give them more staying power Mm -hmm. and you can have a nice balance if you go with more regular troops of you're not running a horde army of inexperienced soldiers, uh, but you're not uh, sinking all of your points into veterans and um, creating a smaller army. So I actually like to run most of my infantry units as regulars um, because with that fanatics rule, it's a really nice balance of you're getting the staying power, but you're also not, paying as many points right and you also can get some numbers on the tabletop and still have the ability uh in my case uh it's it's to be able to take some of the equipment that they actually took in the battle for shanghai for example but also um though they were experienced soldiers they were just regular soldiers if we think about what a regular soldier is in um you know the the 
European theater, we often think as soldiers that have seen some conflict, you know, aren't elite trained, maybe don't have the specialized equipment, but, you know, are just your regular stock standard GI slash here infantrymen. Like they've seen some conflict. Right. Right. And so when we talk about battle hardened troops, more often than not, uh, or often we, we think of them as regular. And so for me, that perfectly matches the regular Japanese infantrymen, right? Yeah. Regular Japanese infantrymen has been in, in conflict for years before most of the other nations have been. So, um, yeah, they're definitely experienced. And, uh, yeah, I think that's a really good description of them. So do you tend to do your listing around a particular... Uh, battle or a particular uh, section of the war is there what what sort of your if you pull back your your listing a little bit um, mm-hmm. what what are your ideas about where your army is fighting what's what's sort of the story there sure um, well to kind of answer that question like I'll give you kind of a broad overview Please. of of my thinking of of like building a Japanese army um, I think you mentioned before like the Japanese, uh, you know they they went to went to war in 1939 with that Arasaka rifle, mm-hmm. and they finished the war with that Arasaka rifle. Oh yeah. Um, you know their 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 pace of uh, technological I guess advancement uh, uh, was not up to par with the rest uh, of the world at that time, with the rest of the uh, the major powers. Right. Uh, so when I was thinking of, of building Japanese. I was excited to start them because almost all of the equipment that they had uh, and all the units that they are capable of taking in bolt action can theoretically be used anywhere from mid thirties to 1945. Yeah. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, in, uh, like uh, weapons changes or even like uniform changes. Um, and especially with the armor, um, you know, you take the Hago tank that was used the, forever, used forever. Yeah. Uh, way past the point of where it should be used. Um, but I could purchase a Hago tank, use it for a bolt action game that's set in the war in China, but also use it, uh, for a game 1944 on, on Peleliu. Um, so that, that's one of the aspects that got me really excited about uh, about playing the Japanese. Some of that is, uh, <laughs> reduces some of the amount, uh, of hobby time that goes into it when you mm-hmm. can kind of have some multi-purpose, um, units and forces, but all that to, to circle back to your original question. Um, I, I hop around a bit with where, um, I theme my Japanese army yeah. and, uh, and where I like to focus, um, kind of where they're at in the war. So I have a friend who plays uh, early nationalist Chinese mm-hmm. uh, with the German Stahlhelms and the German kit. Um, and almost all of my Japanese infantry works for that battle. I can mm-hmm. take, uh, you know, I can take a Hago. I can take a, uh, uh, a tank at, um, I have a, uh, the Japanese version of the FT-17 mm-hmm. that saw some action in China. It did. Um, so that's that's all there and ready to go. Uh, but we're also building up uh, to play through the uh, the campaign book from Warlord that came out, the Mariana and Palu- 
uh, Palau Islands. Yes. Um, so that takes you through Saipan and, and Guam and Peleliu. And so, uh, again, I can use a lot of that, uh, a lot of the same infantry units for that, but it, I have also got some Chiha tanks. Uh, I've got infantry guns. Um, and yeah, I can, it's, uh, I'm repeating myself now, but if you want, you can take that Japanese army almost anywhere in the Pacific or the China theater. Um, so they're very flexible in that way. If you're approaching bolt action from like a, a historical standpoint. If I can quickly jump in on that. Um, and yes, that is exactly how I did my Japanese the first time around. Um, because I was using the Warlord generic uh, infantry models, the metal ones, before they had the plastic ones, those mm -hmm. work you know, almost equally well in both, unless you have, for example, the jungle fighters, and then those don't right. necessarily work, right? Um, right. But uh, with with that, there are a couple of little historical hiccups, and I, you know, I'm going to be that guy for five seconds. Um, Let's do it. Okay. Uh, if you're going to roll your eyes at button counting here, guys, get ready. Here's when I'm going to, you know, be the button counter for five seconds. Yes, um, most things work across the board in both ways, and I'm sure you know all this, Jordan. Um, I'm just going to throw a few out because I, I get asked this from time to time. Um, there are a couple of tankettes, for example, that didn't make it into the island hopping campaign, but were in China. So the Type 92, the one with the heavy machine gun that everyone loves, that didn't actually mm -hmm. appear in the island hopping campaigns. Um, likewise, the Type, the, the Rojo, the, the heavy howitzer assault gun that everyone loves yeah. to talk about, that was yeah. only in the island hopping campaigns and wasn't um, used... At least I've yet to find an example of it being used in China. I would love someone to show me where it appeared, but at least it doesn't. It isn't used in my part of um, the Chinese conflict because it wasn't around in 1937. It didn't come out till years after that. Um, but so there is a little bit there, like the Type 87 t um, armored car appeared in China a lot, mm -hmm. and again wasn't in the island hopping campaign so there is a little bit with the vehicles of, of going back and forth but as you say the hago the chiha um those got used throughout the war um i use the the ego uh the type uh god is the 87 97 i should know this um it's basically a slow chiha and i have two of them in my japanese army um mm -hmm. but again they were used until 1945 in china but they they weren't used in the island hopping campaign because they were obsolete at that point um right. so there's there, there is there is some give and take um for example early in the war um the medium howitzers were very rare heavy howitzers and the light howitzers that we see um in japanese forces um the type 4 was used in the 1930s in china a lot and then, you know, right. appeared in in the island hopping campaign, but more often than not on the mainland um, versus the medium howitzer, which were far more common in the island ha island hopping campaign, were used far less in China, for example. Um, so there is a little bit of, you know, give and take there. But there, for sure. Yeah. But as you say, the, the basic infantryman roughly doesn't change unless you want to start getting into you know, strange attire um, compared to what we usually consider uh, for Japanese soldiers, which in my case, since my Japanese are in China and um, 1937, 1938, 
a lot of the places they were fighting had very harsh winters. So I actually have a great coat Japanese army um, converted off of the Soviet great coat models using, you know, kit bashing with the warlord plastics, um, sort of smashing them together with a bunch of metal parts thrown in. But that's because I wanted a Japanese army that didn't look anything like what you would appear in the island hopping campaign. So my, I sort of painted myself into a pigeonhole. I can't actually fight Marines with my Japanese, but um, you know, there are other conflicts for great coat Japanese, and we can talk about it, right. that another time. But um, let's get back to the way you approach listing. So you, you're saying that you generally use regular riflemen. And it sounds like, I mean, having seen the, the breadth of your collection, that there's some depth there. What mm-hmm. does, a, is, it, is it too unreasonable to ask what would a, a regular Japanese army look like to you or what is the basic mentality you use when going into I mean does it is it your opponent is it the is it just do you get an idea for a list when you're looking at an event or a a particular scenario what is it that helps you to build your Japanese army when you put the models on the tabletop uh, just for me personally, um, I do kind of hover around that uh, rule of cool um, yeah. slash historical standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, I've not had a ton of opportunities to be hyper competitive, uh, so I can't speak to that side as much. But when it comes to, to rule of cool, um, usually for me, that has something to do with the armor that I'm taking. Uh, I just Japanese armor in general is very interesting to me yeah um but anyone who's been around bold action will know that they are not the most effective armor no. units um great against infantry the other nations not great against tanks <laughs> exactly <laughs> um so so usually what i like to do is i if i've painted up a new uh a new piece um a new armor uh model or something i like to make sure that that's included in the list but then most of my uh, most of the rest of my army is, is pretty standard. Um, if I'm running uh, regular infantry squads, uh, I like to take at least four. Nice. Um, that's going to give you... How large are you? Because Japanese squads can be huge. They can be very big. So I usually run 10-man um, squads. If I'm taking uh, a squad of the knee mortars, which mm-hmm. I like to do, that that squad I'll usually run at 12. Um, I have found that if, if I have too many huge squads uh at a at a certain point they start to become a little bit redundant and difficult to kind of maneuver around the table yeah and keep them in cover you know because 50 percent of your unit has to be in cover uh, and when you got eight, <laughs> 18 guys uh, <laughs> yeah that's it's, hard it's difficult to do it's difficult to do it's a little intimidating for your opponent for sure um to look at your side of the table and see these giant squads running yeah. at, at them but uh um, but yeah, so, uh, usually around 10 men, um, per squad, I, I do usually bring the one squad of the knee mortars. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I tried spreading out those mortars between the different squads. Yeah. Um, but usually that, that mortar is always hitting on a six, mm-hmm. um, in most situations. So I found that actually just putting them into one unit and making that unit my, uh, my like my air quote shock troops. Mm-hmm. Um, if I need a objective captured, send them in, let the mortars rain down, um, 
you know, if you have three shots needing sixes, that's going to be uh, much more likely to do some damage rather than one exactly. mortar needing a six. Um, so I really like them to uh, uh, pound the unit that's holding the objective. And then even if I, I take a, a pin or two on the way in, um, you know, you can use that bonsai rule mm-hmm. to get them to get them moving and get them onto that objective, um, regardless of pins. Well, speaking so, of pins, if you're hitting mm-hmm. people with those light mortars, I mean, sure, it's only D two pins, but you're getting the opportunity to put a couple of extra pins, or at least a, an extra pin on top of the usual, on top of the squad you're hitting, and that can right. really go a long way because people, if even if they pass their order test to shoot at you, uh, they still have that minus one which again is great defense for you. It almost gives you light cover without actually being in light cover. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And if I I may quickly, before we go, um, if you do want hilarity, ladies and gentlemen, take a couple of 15-man Japanese veteran squads uh, and then in an objective-grabbing mission, hide one of them somewhere and then in the last turn, run out and claim two objectives at once. And then watch people try and get rid of you. Ha ha. Take yep. that. I've done that <laughs> once. Uh, much to uh, Dave of War's consternation in a game. Uh, I did it literally for giggles. And um, yeah, it, it was pretty funny. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> but it worked. Yeah, oh, man, did it. You know, he's like, why are you holding them, you know, to take an objective? That's a big squad for that. And then you'll see. And then turn six, bottom of turn six, I ran them out and Kunga lined. And even though we went to turn seven, um, it was like, oh well, I'm I'm going down. Have fun. Try and get rid of me. That, yeah. That is amazing. Yeah. I I might have to try that someday, and I'll just I'll blame you for it if my opponent gives me grief. Yeah. Look, I'm just <laughs> I'm not saying it's the nicest thing in the world. I'm not saying it's the most effective thing in the world. But if you want to do, I, it was funny anyway. Bolt action. Absolutely. It's great. Bolt uh, action is so good. Yeah. Okay. So you got four infantry squads. Um, you got um, a name order squad. Do you take light machine guns in your squads? Because I, I understand you are more historically minded in your listing. Um, what are your thoughts about the light machine gun in a Japanese army? Uh, I I will run one or two. Yeah. Um, part of it is like, uh, I, so so I play exclusively with metal miniatures mm-hmm. uh, for my Japanese. Um, and so, you know, when you're buying the 10 man blister, uh, you're, you're getting an LMG yeah, most you of are. the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I already have them. Um, I've done some conversion work on them also. So they kind of are a little more near and dear to my heart. Yeah. Um, so I will run one LMG and again, it's kind of, it's, it's nice to have just to have the, the, the extra range. Yeah. Uh, like you were saying before, even if you can get one pin on a unit, I, I can't tell you how many times I've had, uh, I've either been on the receiving end or I've seen it happen to my opponent where they, you know, need their unit to do this one thing. It's really mm-hmm. important. It's turn six and one pin, even on a veteran unit, that order check gets failed. Bolt action happens, baby. It bolt, that's bolt action happens. <laughs> happens so many times. So, um, Really, even just the chance of getting uh, an extra pin out there is super important. Um, um, I'm I literally run one light machine gun in my force as well, only because I I had I have one um, because my army was painted by my good friend Patch, 
Um, mm-hmm. I, I do have a short w- wish list of uh, models that if I was to ever I say, hey, Patch, can you paint five more? Two of them would be light machine guns, and then I'd have some more gun crew um, mm-hmm. for artillery pieces, just so, <laughs> because I, I forgot when I had to paint the army that Japanese crews on artillery pieces can be as large as their squads. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I couldn't, yeah, I, I literally have that one machine gun there to, as you say, throw out those pins. Um, but if I can circle back to their national rule, that bonsai charge has yes. um, contested slash won me a ton of games. Now, as I said, I don't play the Screaming Horde Japanese list, and so mm-hmm. I don't use Bonsai that often. Um, I tend to play with mine as more of just a regular rifleman. I, I tend to run five, eight to nine-man squads um, in my Japanese armies, and they're all mm-hmm. regular. Um, but there tend to be very... I, I also have one three-mortar three team squad and i have one squad with the light machine gun so it sounds like we run very similar armies um yeah and for me you know there's always that moment and i'm going back to what you were saying a second ago where bolt action happens and you know you desperately need a squad to get to an objective at the end of the game and they have a couple pins and you're like or a pin and you're like oh god please pass this mortar you know morale check and they they fail and then your guys go mm-hmm. down and you lose the game or whatever else. With Bonsai Charge, you just take that away. You don't have, you can just charge in the direction of the nearest enemy squad. And if you approach the way you've deployed your models and you, you figure out where things are going and how things are going, if you desperately need to, um, I have Bonsai Charge to an objective. Because remember, you yeah. don't have to reach the opponent. You can just run at them and it takes you 12 inches. And if that takes you to an objective, just short of someone else's squad, or even if they're across the table, it doesn't matter as long as they're the closest enemy, um, that, that you just, you remove a pin and you just move them the 12 inches, um, or six Mm -hmm. inches. If you have been in cover, which is sometimes what you want, if you just are trying to contest an objective or get to an objective um and not overshoot it if depending on where the opponent is so it sometimes behooves you to leave a model in cover um you know in a a tree line to go oh oh, i'm moving six inches uh and yes that is a little gamey but (laughs) when you're trying to get that objective at the end sometimes you in you are pulling the trigger on bonsai charge it really helps you to put an air brake on where things are going what they're doing um because I often have a squad in cover in turn five or turn six, and you're trying to get to that objective, right. then it's that six inches. So getting close to an objective but not on it can be a valuable tactic, depending on where your opponent is with the Japanese army, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And that rule actually works pretty well defensively. If you need your your Japanese squad to hold an, an objective, mm-hmm. um, and you've got you know, you, you've got your opponent's squads that are slowly coming towards that objective, even if they're just putting pins on your unit, you just keep going down. And then that turn six, when they are close, bonsai them out. And, uh, you know, you're going to, you don't have to worry about the order check. So even if you've accumulated all these pins, uh, you get to bonsai uh, towards this unit that's coming at your objective and your fanatics. So, uh, I would say most of the time you're going to have a very good chance of winning that combat. 
Agreed. Um, so that that rule has worked for me even like defensively before. So it's it's a pretty versatile rule and uh, like an experienced opponent uh, does know how to oh, yeah. to uh, use it against you if they you know throw out some uh, some maybe some chaff type units uh, get them close to you so that mm-hmm. you have to bonsai towards them. Um, but not everyone you play no. uh, knows fa- those tactics. In fact, uh, a lot of times, uh, if you're playing bolt action like in, in an open event, for example, how often have the people that you're playing against faced Japanese? And if they Very have, true. were they playing the inexperienced horde? <laughs> right. Hey, let me show you a different way of playing, boys and girls. It's just a totally different mindset. Um, and sure, exactly. if someone knows what they're doing, they're going to have counters for these. But, you know, just here are a little, a few uh, peas for your pod, so to say, uh, speak. Um, so Absolutely. let's go beyond infantry, machine guns, mm-hmm. and mortars. What are we talking about? What do you like using for small teams? Um, well, if I'm playing early war, I do run a uh, anti-tank rifle. Mm-hmm. Um it, especially like when you're playing in China, there are so many tankettes yes. and and seven plus armor vehicles. Um, not to mention any any trucks or ve- other vehicles like mm-hmm. soft skins. Oh yeah, that anti that anti tank rifle becomes much more useful in an early war setting. Um, it, I actually I the first time I played against my friend. Uh, Chinese. He just had a couple of those. Um, are they the Cardin Lloyd mm-hmm. carriers or? Um, and I didn't have my anti tank rifle, and I I I couldn't even really do anything against them. Yeah. So when I got home from that that game of bolt action, I painted up my anti tank rifle. <laughs> yeah. Exactly <laughs> um, right. Um, and the anti tank rifle was used in China until 1945. Like it was, it was just what they used because all of the AT right. guns for them, well, most of the AT guns were in, you know, were funneled to, to fight the Americans. Um, and so right. the AT rifle stuck around because the, the Chinese just didn't have the heavy armor and they just didn't need them. Um, but it also right. means that if you're, if you're playing a, a army like mine, which was, you know, circa 1935, 738. I don't have any AT assets I can use other than an ATR and a heavy howitzer. And you go, hmm, yeah, exactly. Have fun with that. <laughs> exactly. Um, now, I mean, an interesting footnote for the Japanese list is you can take an anti tank rifle and suicide AT guys in one mm-hmm. slot. Now, the suicide AT thing came up, you know, because of the island hopping campaign and because the Japanese were the aggressors in China in, you know, that section of the war. They just didn't do that. The Chinese did. Um, Right. So I don't use suicide AT very often, if ever, in my armies. um, And I kind of miss it because it really does give me a tool (laughs) that the army kind of needs. What are your thoughts? How how does that work for you? Do you use suicide AT guys often? Because they are sort of the bread and butter for a lot of Japanese lists. Uh, Yeah, I will use them uh, for later war, um, like 1943 Mm -hmm. onwards. Um, I have no problem putting them in my list. Um, They do take a little bit of... Uh, like practice almost to get to use them yeah. effectively. Agreed. Uh, b- because what I found is if you're actually really aggressive with your suicide AT guys, um, they're not going to get to the tank that you're trying to blow up because exactly. your opponent is going to be very, uh, 
uh, very aware of them. Um, you know, they're the hardest hitting uh, penetration value in the game. Plus eight, baby. Yeah, that's right. So, like, your opponent knows that, and it's like, I need to kill that right now, right away, especially if you're getting close to some of their armor. Um, but what I have found uh, with the Suicide AT guys is that they're excellent uh, psychological weapons. Um, mm-hmm. So they're a small team. They're a small team. They're a single man. Uh, if you just get them on, a, on a, a third of the table, and if you can get them behind cover, mm-hmm. um, even if... Uh, even if they're going down some of the times, um, some of the turns, you're shutting off that that third of the table to armor movement. Yeah. Um, uh, even if it's <laughs> uh, even if it's not as much of a threat as most people think, um, it is very much a psychological threat because they're like, well, I'm not going to put my, uh, you know, I'm not going to put my king tiger anywhere over there mm-hmm. uh, because there's an A plus. Um, suicide at guy over there and so Mm -hmm. then you you can you and especially if you have two or three of them uh you can really determine how your opponent uh is going to move their armor around so um it takes it takes a little bit of work because it's very fun to run your guy into your opponent's tank and watch it Mm -hmm. go boom uh and so it's very difficult sometimes to hold back from that um But uh, but they definitely can be effective in that role. Just a couple of notes on Suicide AT, guys. As you said, plus eight penetration. Um, they did FAQ them. They do have the tank hunter rule, so you don't have to pass a morale check um, when assaulting right. tanks, and they don't have the minus three, um, which you know we kind of always, always assumed that was the case. Um, but it's right. nice that they put it in print, um, especially for the Chinese, because, again, I, I run those as well. Um, yeah. But it is important to remember that if you are over six inches uh, at the start of the turn when you are charging a tank with these guys, because it is it does count as a charge, um, mm-hmm. that they can fire um, machine guns if the tank has or whatever gun. I've, I've seen a heavy AT gun <laughs> fired at these guys before, uh, point yep. blank. But, you know, it... You can shoot at them if they still if they have not already activated that turn. So you need to be careful about who's activated and who hasn't. Um, if you're over six inches, I should say, uh, because it is you know. But the other part of that is they are wonderful uh, distractions. Uh, mm-hmm. And I've in running a couple of these in the past, and I do tend to run them as regular, like the rest of my army. Um, right. They they are surprisingly hard to hit. Um, and Mm. they, you know, if you are moving up, you can give them a little bit of light cover or, you know, even if you're out there, you have the minus one because of, um, being a one man team and depending on range or whatever else, I've seen people funnel three to four squads firing at these guys just to ensure that they don't take out the tank. Well, in doing so, those three to four squads aren't shooting at the rest of my infantry squads that are coming up behind them. So exactly. It, they are wonderful distractions. And as you say, psychologically, you get them behind some cover and you put them somewhere and they are a wonderful deterrent, especially since they're what? 20 points regular uh, from memory, maybe 21 points. It, it's beautiful. Yeah. And it's an order dice. So you, you know, it's just an order dice you can keep in your bag. And as you say, just keep going down until you need them. And they go exactly. a long way. If you get to blow up the tank, 
that's just an added bonus, but they really should be used as kind of that like distraction, like you said. And they work really well if you use them in pairs. Because mm. <laughs> while they, they're betting all of their points in one, you know, all they're shooting into one, the other one's creeping around the other corner. Um, exactly. Yeah. So uh, if if I've run them, I've run two in in regular, and I've I've put them next to one another or near one another behind cover, and then just said, "Come at me," because again, they forward deploy, um, and they exactly. can forward deploy hidden. So you go, okay, cool. I'm hiding a little bit further up. They're already in position. Um, but the, and I guess my last point is they're infantry. So even if you spend the whole game down, um, behind a wall, and then all of a sudden it's turn six and no one's going to, they're just going to be quote unquote wasted. If you are within run distance of an objective, that's just, that's just gravy, baby. And people, if you've left them there the whole game, people often forget you know, as, as the deterrent as they are, once, you know, it gets down to the grabbing objectives at the end, it's surprising how many people forget that they are actually there in the first place <laughs> because they've been avoiding them the whole time. Oh, they're, that's just a deterrent. They won't come out with, you know, for fear of being shot. And then all of a sudden they're right. on an objective. Oops. And they're a small team. Have fun. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's all about grabbing those objectives. Anyway. Um, did you have anything else you wanted to say about the suicide guys before we moved on? Uh, no, I think, I think we covered them pretty well. Cool. Um, what about the trifecta of, I guess you already covered the anti-tank rifle. What about, um, sort of the other common, uh, small teams as far as mortars, flamethrowers, and snipers? Um, you know, we, we covered light machine guns. Uh, earlier mm-hmm. um, and I know they're not super popular in bolt action but I do like to run a, a medium machine gun mm-hmm. with my Japanese army nice uh, again coming from that rule of cool historical mindset um, mm-hmm. I mean the medium machine gun for the Japanese is so iconic and it's iconic for almost all of the armies in World War II but um, especially if you're thinking of the Japanese uh, on the defensive um, the machine gun in the bunker or behind the fallen tree um, is so iconic. So I do like to run uh, an MMG uh, with with my army, um, and, and I think it's a it's another unit that it's not stellar in bolt action, but also if you use it right, if you're um, using it to hold down a, a lane a, like a firing lane, it can be effective. Um, so I actually do like running an MMG. Um, uh, as far as like like a medium mortar, I... well, hold on. That medium, Whoa. I mean, that machine gun's great for adding those pins, right? Um, Absolutely. As we were talking about before, just like the light, except it has a better range. And it's if you've maxed out on your infantry squads and you don't want to go to a second platoon, that's not a bad small squad. Almost, um, if you can get it behind cover. I mean, yes, it's sniper bait, mm-hmm. but again, sniper bait isn't always a bad thing because it means that. Snipers are shooting at it and not at other things. Again, there's a lot to that. Um, It's the game within the game. Sorry, you were saying mortars. That's right. Um, Yeah, jump into to medium mortars. Uh, Mm -hmm. A medium mortar is a auto include in pretty much every army that I run. Like, doesn't matter the nationality. Um, Just they're at they're at that great points level um, where their their effectiveness is. like perfectly in line with how much they cost to, to actually put into your army. Um, so I, I always run one with a, um, with a spotter. Yeah. 
Um, but you have that indirect fire um, that's going to take care of any stationary um, units. And then it's it's another psychological weapon that it is. can really put the hurt on, on a unit if it's not moving. Mm-hmm. Um, so even if it ends up not hitting anything in the entire game, you're forcing your opponent to to really think about what they're doing and their tactics. Well, here's here's another sentence I never thought I'd say. Learning, uh, so here's something I learned from playing against Norwegians. Um, <laughs> our, uh, our buddy Akhtar uh, and I played a game, my Chinese versus his Norwegians, very historical. Um, but in it, he just didn't have the AT assets in his army. And so he used his medium mortar because top armor is lighter. Um, you can just get pins on and it's not a matter of trying to penetrate and destroy a vehicle that is often a fool's uh, errand but if you can get some pins onto a vehicle with a mortar that as you said bolt action can happen and it can just cause those vehicles to back up back up back up um, because they fail their order test and that can i mean that is as valuable as gold for japanese players sometimes Absolutely. Those pins are sometimes more important than actually killing units. Mm-hmm. And if you can throw another pin on with an ATR, for example, if you can get two pins on with a medium mortar and get one more with the ATR, three pins, you know, you might just force your opponent to rally. Um, you know, and that's what a lot of people would say in that situation. Ah, oh, just rally. It's fine. Well, cool. That's one less turn of that tank beating up your troops, which, Absolutely. you know, is a great trade off in my mind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, yeah, I also run a medium mortar. Man, it sounds like mm, we didn't coordinate this beforehand. It sounds like we run the same army. Um, <laughs> what about flamethrowers? Because um, a lot of people talk about flamethrowers as a, as a, if not the viable anti-tank option for a Japanese force. Um, and yes, they were used in China, so I, I do have them. Um, they, mm-hmm. they are now available in Japanese engineer squads. Um, but they are also other squads. So what are your thoughts there? Uh, so I've actually not run a, f- a flamethrower in my Japanese army. I do have flamethrowers in my other armies. Mm. Um, I've actually got uh, some Eureka Japanese flamethrowers uh, nice. on my painting table right now. So I will will be including them. Um, but just from like past experiences uh, using them in other armies, um, I definitely like to run them in those engineer squads if it's mm-hmm. an option. Um, you're just much more survivable. Yeah. Uh, and and depending on how you're playing, you can treat that engineer squad as your your shock assault troops. Exactly. You know, put them in a truck, run them up to an objective, run mm-hmm. them up to uh, armor. But um, but yeah, again, the Japanese flamethrower is a is a pretty good AT asset, and it's almost more about that morale check that a vehicle has to take. Yes. Uh, more than actually taking out the vehicle. It is. It absolutely is. Um, and even if you can get it to, you know, even if it passes its test, it still has a bunch of pins on it, and then it has to deal with that the next turn, just like what mm-hmm. we were talking about a minute ago. And that will, you know, even if it only has one more pin after it passes an order check the next turn, that's still one more pin you know, minus one to hit with that tank against your infantry slash whatever else is in your army. Again, it goes a long way. Absolutely. Right on. And I think for the Japanese at least, and I've mentioned it a lot in this episode, for me, it's a pin game. The pins don't matter so much against me, but I really need to make them count against my opponent. It is not just charging headlong into my opponent. It's really 
getting those pins out and forcing them to to pass those checks. And more often than not, they will. I mean, that's what the statistics say. However, Mm -hmm. bolt action does happen and it can happen at some pretty awesome moments. And then, you know, I I end up feeling a little bad and going, sorry, but um, (laughs) but that's the name of the game. Death by a thousand paper cuts. Um, And that's what you got to do, especially when we start talking about, you know, the armor. Uh, How good does it feel to have a Chiha slash um, Ego tank or even a Hago, which has I guess the Hago's got one man turret. But to have um, a gun in one direction, a machine gun on the back of the turret and then a hull mounted machine gun. So all of a sudden, if you can get the trifecta, all three weapon systems firing, usually different squads, um, it makes for great pin sprinklers uh as we used to say back in the day right um and that is again throwing out those pins um and that's that's just that's just how i play uh the japanese um what about are there other small teams that you think are invaluable for the japanese um or what are your thoughts about the pin game um well i think i think playing the japanese army in a way that uh, you're more focused on dishing out those pins than actually destroying enemy units is a really great equalizer um, when you're facing an American army or a British army or whoever that has a firepower advantage over you. Um, those pins uh, become invaluable, and especially when they don't affect you as much with your uh, your fanatic and uh, bonsai special rules. Um, I think. Uh, I think that's the correct way to play Japanese. Um, so I, I think the final small team that I, I would talk about is the sniper team. Yeah. Um, definitely take a sniper. Um, there's a lot of talk about whether they're effective or not. Um, mm-hmm. But when you talk about another iconic Japanese unit, yes, um, it is one of the most iconic, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Japanese soldiers in the war. Um, so definitely run a sniper team. Um, my last game with them, they had great success taking out a couple small teams mm-hmm. um, and putting pins on open top vehicles. There you um, go. And you're you're hitting fifty percent of the time, all the time, That's unless you it. got some pins on you. So yeah, uh, yeah, I think they're pretty valuable as well. And if you're really playing the pin sprinkler game, uh, if you really want to try and reduce someone's odds of you know activating a squad that you really don't want to get to an objective or you don't want to be as effective the following turn if you can get that sniper to shoot out a sergeant not only does that squad have the pin that you want it to but then when it goes to rally it'll be at minus one because it's lost its nco you know german national rules aside um that also goes a long way um if you are playing the death by a thousand paper cuts um approach to bolt action um now jordan we kind of i guess it is important to say that the japanese list does not have a lot of options as far as base troopers they're very similar if you Mm -hmm. cut out the bamboo squad if you cut out the militia squad um now there is the jungle fighting squad which is essentially just your regular rifleman squad but smaller you have your regular rifleman squad or you have your grenadier squad which is a rifleman squad with the option of taking those knee mortars um and of course we talked about the engineer i don't think we necessarily need to talk a lot about the basic infantry squads which might make this you know one of the weirdest discussions for an army in bolt action right because usually (laughs) you talk about which squads are the best to take 
they're very same yep. samey with the Japanese if you're playing standard sort of uh, infantry squads. I, I, do you think I'm summarizing that right? Yeah, I, I think that sounds pretty good. Um, yeah, you're either just going to get your base like inexperienced troops, um, green militia or or naval troops. Um, but then once you go to kind of your, your standard infantry, uh, they're more or less the same across the board and especially in, in how you use them. There aren't a whole lot of units that have access to a lot of uh, submachine guns um, or, or, or kind of really any other specialty weapons for the most part. Um, so I think, yeah, you, your, your standard rifle and grenadier squads, um, are usually going to be the bulk of your army. And yeah. at least for mine, that's what I'm usually running. Cool. Well, I think our time is very, I think we're, we're running a little short, but I think we've covered most of the, the options that we wanted to talk about. Here I am dropping things. Um, <laughs> What let's um, I mean, vehicle wise, I feel like the tanks we've we sort of covered um, mm -hmm. armored cars are great and tankettes are great, depending on what you take. Um, I guess it depends on what conflict is going you're going for. Um, the type mm -hmm. 87 is my go to, but that's because I play in China and that's the two medium machine guns that can be fired either in the same direction or in opposite direction. Great for pin sprinkling. Um, right. And, you know, the, the Chiha slash Ego is sort of the iconic tank slash Hago where you have, you know, which we've talked about, where you have your medium light howitzer, sorry, your, your light howitzer or your light AT gun with uh, a machine gun on the back plus a machine gun on the front. Um, is there any honorable mentions in there? I know the the um, the Honey one is pretty good because it's got a gun that works both ways. Um, right. But again, that's more for mid-war slash late-war island hopping. Um, what are mm -hmm. your thoughts? Uh, I, I think bolt action has that interesting effect on on early war vehicles and especially machine gun laden vehicles that makes them more effective in the game than they were in real life um so you know we talk about the hago that's got the forward and turret machine gun in the back plus your main gun um it's capable of of dishing out pins pin sprinkling like you said yeah uh the chiha also has that ability um you can take the Shinhota Chiha, which upgrades you to a medium anti-tank gun. Mm -hmm. So you at least have some some punch, you know, that you can throw out. And uh, those were against. used in China. Uh, I just found that out. Um, it was in a great Osprey book. I thought they were only in the island hopping campaign, but nope. They were also in China towards mm -hmm. the end of the war. I, so, Yeah, I believe they were, they were built in they started being manufactured in 1943. So yeah. around 44 onwards, you're good to go. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, oh, one unique choice that I do like taking is the AA truck. I'm glad you brought the, that up. I, be mm -hmm. I believe it's the Type 97 AA gun on the it back. It is. Um, actually, uh, one of my last games, I, I ran that vehicle and it took out a Polish light tank, uh, nice. which I was very excited about from long range. Um, it does take up your tank slot, but yeah, uh, it is it is a very fun unit to use. Mm -hmm. um, the auto cannon will shred infantry for sure. Mm -hmm. um, you're spreading out that one inch template. Um, 
but depending on the armor that you're up against, uh, yeah. you can also at least put pins out. Um, but I've experienced it taking out enemy vehicles as well. So yeah, that's a fun cool. one to use. Yeah, man. Uh, and it should be mentioned. I know we sort of said that Japanese AT is not a thing. Uh, in the Empires and Flames book, there is uh, an AA gun that is a heavy uh, anti-tank gun, counts as in the game, which is amazing. Um, and yeah. of course, you need a, a tractor to tow it, but turns out the Japanese had tractors. And if you're looking for the Tamiya model, you can find it easily, which is where I got my Japanese artillery tractor. It's 148 scale, but if you build it and put it on the table, it blends right in with bolt action scale. Um, sure. And it is perfect. And that gun is awesome. And man, no one is more surprised when you set up a heavy AT gun in a Japanese army on the tabletop. And yes, they were used yep. in China and in the island hopping campaign. And you just go, come at me, bro. I've got my heavy AT gun all set for you. Um, I got all my firepower. Exactly. Because, yeah, that that's a that's a fun one to throw down. Uh, but yeah, you, uh, yeah. Uh, not maybe not the most competitive choice but again lots of fun um absolutely any p final thoughts jordan because I, I know this was sort of a rambling chat through the how you build an army but how the tactics work um any final thoughts on the japanese you would encourage people to to check out because it is a, it can be a very rewarding army to play especially if you think outside the box right um yeah, I would just say uh, if you're interested in playing the Japanese, I think a lot of people get intimidated um, by the fact that they think that they have to have 70 infantry units. And especially if they're new to the hobby, like um, there's this uh, they can be overwhelmed, I feel like, uh, thinking they have to to build and paint and field so many infantry models. Um, but, yeah, I would just like to like give encouragement out there that there's more ways to play the Japanese um, and, and really they, they will fit into uh, a good number of play styles. Um, whether you like to, to run that small veteran force or, you know, r run the more uh, regular oriented platoon, mm -hmm. um, you have a lot of options and uh, yeah, I would just say, uh, don't be intimidated by, don't be intimidated by the model count. Um, yeah. Because, there's ways around it, um, mm -hmm. and it, it it is very rewarding, and it is very rewarding to run the Japanese, not in that horde style, and and do well, and have your opponents. I, I didn't know you could run the Japanese like this. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I've I've run into that before, uh, and it's been a lot of fun. That's but, what I would say. But if you are horde oriented. If you do want to go that route, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, in fact, that's exactly. the majority of the way people play. But if you're right. building up to that and you don't quite have enough, try playing this way first. Um, it, yeah. it it gives you, it lets you get an army on the tabletop faster. Um, you're still getting to know the Japanese rules. Uh, and you might just find out it's, it's maybe a, a good hop, skip, and a jump uh, as far as if you're going straight from like a veteran regular maybe european style army to the horde army this might be a nice stepping stone to get you there uh mentality wise if that makes sense so yeah it's an interesting way to play guys thank you for joining us guys we i know this is sort of a, a very niche army um and, and a niche way of playing it but we really wanted to dig into sort of an army that we thought 
you know, could be explored and really talk about different ways to look at playing it. Uh, and maybe that will mean that more Japanese players will be out there. Now, if you're looking for some of the weird vehicles that we've been talking about today, um, Company B makes almost all the army that we've talked to, uh, armor that we've talked about today. I know you can get their models through Brigade um, slash other places if you're having trouble getting hold of them personally. I also I know there's some 3D printing options out there at the moment. Yeah, Warlord of course makes a lot of great tanks and vehicles and models. Eureka and Warlord make awesome Japanese infantry. I mean, there's just so many good companies out there. If you have any questions, please message the the page Cast Dice C A S T D I C E, and I will uh, answer any questions that you have. I've been researching this for a while, uh, and I would love to answer any questions that you have. Uh, Jordan, thank you so much for joining us today, man. Yeah, this was great. Thanks for having me on. Anytime. In fact, we'll have to do it soon. I, I think I want to talk Japanese paratroopers at some point because they're awesome. Oh, but yes. that is a whole other kettle of fish. Uh, that's a whole other hour in, uh, in and of itself. But guys, again, if you are out there, it is weird at the moment. Places are you know opening up. Places are closing down. There are surges of COVID. There aren't. Uh, please be good to yourselves out there, guys. I've been talking to a lot of people recently who've been talking about their morale and their hobby mojo waning, um, and it's sort of making them feel guilty. Guys, this is a hobby. It's supposed to make you feel better. Um, I've just been grabbing some of those low-hanging fruit and knocking out like little terrain pieces or tanks. Just find something that looks fun if you really want to try and get your mojo back. But if you don't, that's cool too. Be good to yourselves, guys. As our buddy Casey always says, when you're playing the games that we know and love, I hope your dice roll hot. I hope your beverages are cold. But more than anything else, we at Cast Dice hope that you are having fun. Stay safe out there, guys. Good night. And the terrorists fanned out.